My name is Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. Good to be here. Good to be sober. Uh, it is truly an honor to participate in a Al-Anon convention. Uh, I think it's special. Uh, I'd like to thank the committee for inviting us up, and uh, I'd like to thank Greg and Becky and Mike for keeping in touch and making sure that we got here. Uh, before I get into my story, I, uh, I got something I want to do this morning is uh, uh, send a little praise uh, to our tapers, to the wonderful job that they do for taping and carrying the message and sending it out to uh, people everywhere in the world. And uh, I've got a f friend taper, Bill, lives up in Ohio, and uh, back in 1965, Juanita and myself and our daughter Pam talked at the International Convention in Toronto, Canada. Back then they had those old reel-to-reel -reel tapes and uh, after I was sober about 15 years and my daughter had grown up and gotten away from home and married, and, uh, I got to thinking I sure would like to have a tape of what she said up at that convention. And uh, I started telling tapers about it and about, about a year ago, uh, Bill called me and he sent me some, some CDs in. And he'd run across a woman in New York who had died and had just a whole box full of old reel-to-reel -reel tapes. And uh, he had converted that into a CD. It was a talk about Juanita and myself and our daughter Cindy at that convention. Uh, that happened about a year ago. And just this past, it was either Monday or Tuesday, I got in the mail home some CDs. Uh, opened them up, and they were from Bill, and had a little note. And uh, I looked at those CDs, and it, it said, Indiana Al-Anon Convention, Juanita, Bob, and our second daughter, Pam. And I couldn't even remember Pam talking there. And it said, Nashville, Indiana, 1975. <laughs> and I can add and subtract a little bit, and I think that was the first... Indiana Al-Anon Convention was held over at the Ramada Inn downtown here. And Juanita and I and our daughter was there to, uh, I guess, start off the Indiana. I, I guess maybe we didn't get it right, and 35 years later, y'all would write us back. Uh, uh, I, I, wish I, I wish I'd had the opportunity to hear myself talk and know what I said so I would uh, know whether to repeat it or say something new, you know. Uh, uh, but if I don't get it right in 35 years, you invite me back again, and uh, I'll be 115 then. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but I'll be glad to come if you invite me, and I'm still around. Uh, but it is good to be sober. Uh, I can t tell you my 15 years of drinking in about one minute. I was just like any other alcoholic. I was like, like the alcoholic, got up every day and went to work every day. And after a good hard day's work, I would stop at that tavern to have one drink, and I'd have two, and then I'd become a big shot, and I bought the, the round for the every place, you know. And about 15 years later, I walked into that same tavern, different bartender, same tavern, Walked in there early one morning, said, man, I need a drink bad. The bartender set me up three double shots and three beer chasers. And I got the money. 
he fumbled in his pocket trying to get his bill folded out, and the bartender saw what he was doing, so he set him up, and he hustled up to that bar stool, and man, he decided to drunk that thing down real quick and chased it with a beer. And wasn't but 90 seconds, he had all three of them gone. The bartender said, man, you sure do drink fast, don't you? He said, well, you'd drink fast, too, if you had what I got. He said, my God, man, what do you got? He said, about 75 cents. That's, that's my drinking story. I was a big shot when I started, and uh, when I ended up, I was broke. But, you know, I didn't set out to be an alcoholic. I can remember when I was a young man, 12, 13, 14 years old, and I had dreams and ambitions of what I wanted to accomplish in my life. And I can look back this afternoon, and I'll be reminded of all these things that was, I threw away was because of alcohol. I don't know when I took my first drink. I don't think that's important. I remember my last one very, very well. But I do know this. By the time I was about 17 years old and a junior in high school, drinking was already very, very important to me. Uh, we used to take beer to school, and uh, we'd take it down in the barler room with the janitor down there. He liked to take a drink, too. And uh, we'd hide it down there. And we was down a couple of boys. We was playing sports, and principal walked in one day and called us boys drinking down there. And uh, we were taken up the office and reprimanded for this. But you know, that janitor got fired that day. He lost his job. And I picked up on that right away. I knew why I was down there drinking. It was his fault. He lost his job. And you know, I used that excuse or one just like it for the next 15 years. I could never, ever slow down long enough to take a look and, and say, yes, I've been drinking too much. Uh, I lost my first job when I was 18 years old. I was a pretty good baseball player, not a chance uh, to play professional baseball. And I lasted six weeks with that organization, and uh, they got rid of me because I couldn't, or I got rid of them. I don't know what happened, uh, but my drinking was already more important than playing sports. And I convinced myself that I really didn't want to play baseball, that I wanted to come back to Louisville and get married. And Juanie and I were not even dating steady at that time. Uh, one and I, we used to date off and on all through high school, and uh, she wouldn't date me steady because uh, I had a bad problem of, uh, I make a lot of dates with her, but I just had a problem showing up a lot of, a lot of times. It, uh, it just, I'd have that date, we was going out, and, and I'd get in that tavern and start drinking, and it just didn't seem too important. We go tonight, hell, we can go tomorrow night, you know, and, and, and that's what I was, and she told me one time when I was 17 years old, she looked at me and she said, Bob, when you drink a bottle of beer, it changes your personality. And I said, one of you're nuts. When I drink a bottle of beer, your personality changes. Mine <laughs> and I, I, I'm sure we were both right. But and one of you knew a little bit about alcohol, and she had an uncle who was an alcoholic and saw what had happened to him, and, and, and I think... One is saw the very same thing happening to me, and she tried to warn me about what was happening, and I wouldn't listen to her. And uh, I asked her to marry me, and she said, no, she'd never marry me. She said, uh, not, not the way, way that I drank. I caught her in a weak moment one night, and we were, uh, I guess we was in the car. I don't remember where we were, but anyway, I, I gave her that engagement ring. And she said, what is this? And I said, I want you to marry me. She gave it back to me. She said, I told you I would never marry you the way you drink. 
And I looked at those big brown eyes of hers that night, and I said, Juanita, do you think that after we're married and I have responsibilities that I'll drink like this? And I, I, I guess she believed me because uh, she asked for that ring. But you know the baffling thing about this, I believed that responsibility would keep me from drinking too. But I will assure you this afternoon, responsibility will not keep this alcoholic from drinking. One and I got married. We had seven children, and she was pregnant with the eighth child, and I was still drinking. And to me, that's a little bit of responsibility. I don't know how you feel about it. But, but we, we now have nine children. And other than my sobriety, the greatest things happening in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous has turned this responsibility around of raising these nine children a responsibility that I have really enjoyed. And you know, when I was drinking, that was a tremendous responsibility. Because, frankly, I was always thinking to myself, and it took a lot of money to feed these kids and clothe them and educate them. And quite frankly, I would have rather been spending that money on myself doing what I wanted to do. And I resented all, all the things that it took to take care of this family. Uh, after I, one and I got married, I got a job. I've always worked in sales, and I had a, a, just a tremendous job. And uh, my mother-in-law at that time happened to be in the real estate business. And my, mother, my mother-in-law and I couldn't get around. I, I was sober in AA a few weeks before I knew I had a drinking problem. I thought I had a mother-in-law problem, really. <laughs> but, uh, uh, she didn't want one and I to get married. And uh, Anyway, we got married, and uh, uh, she happened to be in the real estate business. And this is one time one uh, and I sat down and talked about something. Uh, her mother and ourselves, we sat down, and she offered to take me as a partner in that business. And one and I said, how in the world are you going to make this work? Y'all can't stay in the same room together. How are you going to be in business together? Well, I was interested in one thing at God Almighty Dollar. I knew with money in my pocket, I could buy happiness, peace of mind, the love of my children, the love of my wife, the respect of everybody in the community. I'm here to tell you this afternoon, this alcoholic could not do it with money in his pocket. I was very successful in the real estate business. I specialized in selling taverns. seemed to be the thing I knew best. And, uh, <laughs> I went up the ladder fast in the real estate business and uh, I kept this other job and I was drinking and uh, I forgot a lot of times who I was working for and uh, and if I did sell you a house and you gave me some deposit money, I forgot your money got mixed up with my money and oh, it was, it was just a, a madhouse for about five years. And uh, when I was uh, about 25 years old, I lost that business. Uh, my mother-in-law offered to buy me out. i t- tell you what, show you what a nut I was. We was working out of my mother-in-law's house. Had a big front porch across her house, and our office was in her living room. And uh, we'd talked one time about building a new office. And I don't know, it was maybe six months thereafter, and my mother-in-law made a mistake. She took a vacation, was going to be gone for a couple months, and she no more and pulled out the driveway, and I decided, hell, now's a good time to build that office. She's gone. And we built an office while she was gone, pushed the front porch off my mother-in-law's house and built an office there, and she was a little bit upset about that, and she got back. And, uh, it just about broke the company is what happened, and about a year later, I had to sell my half of that business to my mother-in-law, and I, I, I wasn't too upset about this because... Uh, one, I used to come down, I, 
I had a favorite tavern I drank in. It was called Wolfert's Tavern. And uh, I was there every day. I had to be there. Even if I wasn't drinking, I had to be there. And one used to come down all the time, and she'd catch me down there, and she'd come in, and she'd, she'd want money. I mean, I'd say, for what? Well, she'd say for milk or bread or something. Didn't seem too important to me, really. And Anyway, I'd give her $10 and send her on the way. It wouldn't be but a week later, and hell, she'd be back again, you know. And, and I'd say, what did you do with that 10 I gave you last week, woman? You know. So when my mother came up with this idea of buying me out, I thought, man, that's going to work great, you know. I can sit down there and play pinochle and drink beer all day long, and if and when one of shows up, you know, I can whip out that checkbook and send her on her way. So uh, I sold my half of that business, my mother-in-law, and I, I was 25 years old when this took place. And I will never forget this. We went into her attorney's office one day, and, and uh, they had the papers all made out. I knew, I knew what they were. I, I read them. My clients had them and sold my half of that business. My mother, I signed those papers. And then they got the checkbook out. And that got my attention. They paid off all the bills that we owed. And then they wrote me out a check for my half of that business and what we left was $7.85. Uh, that was a little bit over 50 years ago, but even back then, you didn't get too drunk on $7.85. But, you know, the baffling thing about this is I thought I was a pretty sharp guy. I was 25 years old, and alcohol never once ever allowed me to think about why I had lost that business. Alcohol never allowed me to think that way. I, I knew why I lost that business. That mother-in-law stole that business from me, and I'd get even with her someday for that. She, she allowed me to work there for a while, and uh, uh, I went into another business uh, after the, I lost that business and went into the insurance business, and it was just a, just a bad, every, everything I'd done, it was centered around drinking, and, and I can remember over the years how Juan had planned many, many times to change my drinking. I remember after our first daughter was born, uh, we used to go to these church dances all the time, square dance. Loved the square dance, you know, because they drink a lot of beer there. And uh, one would pack the baby. We'd go to the square dance. I'd get drunk. She'd pack the baby and pack me home. Along came the second baby. One had set me down one time. She said, Bob, we've got two children now. We ought to act like parents, be mother and father of these children. We ought to stay home and take care of these kids. And I thought that was a great idea. And, you know, I let her do it. Uh, I just kept doing the same thing I'd always done. Uh, when he began to talk to me about my drinking, uh, how it was affecting these children. And I tried many, many times to see if my drinking affected my children anyway. And uh, I'm sure I did it probably on a Monday morning after a terribly bad weekend. I'd be into that bathroom staring at that mirror on Monday morning with bloodshot eyes, face all red and swollen. I'd get the dry heat and I'd hang my head in that commode. And then I'd think about what one had been preaching about all week, what this drink has been doing to these kids. And I'd always come up with the same answer. I don't know what the hell she's complained about. You know, these kids got a roof over their head and they got shoes on their feet. There's food on the table. I'm the guy that's hurting today. I'm the guy that pulled myself together and go out here and go to work and earn a few bucks so these kids got all these nice things. But you know, when I look back today, I know what Wani was talking about when she talked about this drinking affected these children. I can remember many times pulling in that driveway after I got off from work. And I'd see those two oldest daughters of mine now coming out the kitchen door skipping down the porch to meet Dad, and he got off from work. I'd open that car door, and I'd stumble up that driveway in a drunken stupor. 
And I can see those two little kids now that smile drop off her face. The little heads would hang and they'd turn around and walk back in the house get away from her drunken father. That hadn't happened to me in 48 years around this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have never done anything. My children had to hang their heads and be ashamed of me. And you know, if that's all I got out of the program, it would be worthwhile. One of had a, I thought was a terribly bad habit. She used to put these kids to bed, like at 8 o'clock or something. And, you know, I was out selling taverns, and uh, I used to come home maybe at 10, 30, 11 o'clock, drunk, you know. And she'd have these kids put to bed. I used to raise all kind of hell about this. Who ever heard of kid, putting kids to bed before they got to kiss their dad goodnight? I'd get these kids out of bed. I'd sit them down at that kitchen table. I'd pop them popcorn, open some Cokes, turn that idiot box on, let them watch TV, you know. I'd open me a couple of beers and drink them, and I'd pass out. And then one day I'd get up and put these kids back to bed again. And I, I never saw how this was affecting my children in any way. I can remember this mother-in-law of mine. She, she loved to come over and pick up her grandchildren. And I think one reason I hated my mother-in-law so bitterly is because she was doing the very things for my children that I wanted to do, but I could never get around to doing it because alcohol always got in the way. She'd come over a lot of times on Friday night, pick up these kids and maybe take them to a circus that was in town. You know, sometimes I'd let her have them and sometimes I wouldn't. I'd come in drunk and find out what was going on, and I'd run my mother-in-law out of the house and tell her to get the hell out. Who do you think you are taking my children out of this house without my permission? I wonder what my children must have thought when they saw their drunken father run their grandmother out of the house. And you know, when I come to the next morning, I never once ever thought about what I had done. Alcohol never allowed me to think that way. The next morning, alcohol told me it was my mother-in-law's fault. You know, if she just had the decency to pick up the telephone and call me and say, Bob, may I have the children for the weekend? I would have said yes. I always had that ability to blame somebody else. I remember shortly before I come in to AA, I was down at this favorite tavern of mine, Wolfer's Tavern, and they had a, had a big kitchen behind the bar there, and we used to cook up a lot of things there. So one day, one some drunk coming over with a bunch of turtles. We cleaned turtles. We cooked up a very big vat of turtle soup one day, and it was about 11.30 at night, and was, by this time, we had six children, and uh, uh, I got to think about my kids that night. I didn't know if one had fed them that day or not. And I thought, I better take some soup home. These kids might be hungry. It was about 11.30, and I got these kids out of bed, and I sent them down at that kitchen table. And I put that soup on the stove, and I heated it up, and I can't stand the smell of turtle soup now. But this was a big deal that night. And I poured that soup out to the two oldest ones, and I said, now eat. And they didn't want to eat that soup that night. One reason they didn't want to eat that soup that night we had a little turtle crime in our living room. The kids thought I'd cooked our turtles. But I said, you are going to eat it. It's good for you. I got to slapping the two oldest ones around. I made them eat that soup, and they got sick and threw up. And, oh, it was a mess that night. And you know, when I come to the next morning and realized what had happened, once again, I never thought about what I had done. I blamed Juanita for what had happened. I said if she'd have kept her big mouth shut, the kids would have eaten that soup, they would have loved it, and everything would have been fine. But that isn't true. Ronnie was not eating out in the kitchen that night. That's where alcohol took me. It was shortly after this that uh, Ronnie began to talk about divorce. 
And I think by this time we had six children. And uh, uh, I never did get too excited about divorce. I don't know if you all ever talked about divorce around your house or not, but uh, one and I, we talked about divorce like everybody else talks about the weather. You know, hell, we discussed it every couple of weeks. And she, she got real serious one time about this divorce thing. And uh, the deputy sheriff and doctor on my door, I lived in a little bitty old burg called Shively right outside Louisville, and I knew the mayor and the deputy sheriff, and I helped get them elected and all those things, you know. And the deputy sheriff knocked on my door one Friday night, and he gave me those papers, and I was a smart aleck drunk. I saw what they were, and I just ripped them in half and gave them back to him. I said, I don't want these damn things. He said, Bob, you better read them tomorrow and you sober up. The judge has already signed them. This was on a Friday night, so I read them the next Saturday morning, and, and to this day I cannot remember how much alimony wanted to want it. But I got down to that paragraph, you know, which says child support. Boy, I read that one. She wanted $40 a week for each child that we had. And I wasn't too drunk to multiply six times 40. I could do that. <laughs> and how are you going to pay $240 a week child support, alimony, and drink? It's impossible. I don't care if you do have two jobs. So uh, I went down and talked to Father. What I should do with this nutty woman I'm living with? And... Uh, Father agreed with me. He and I were sitting down having a highball together. Father had the same problem I had. But anyway, he called Wani that morning and said, Get down here, I want to talk to you. I thought, Man, this is going to work out great now. You know, I've got Father on my side. But, you know, Wani got down there and she told Father a different story than what I'd been telling him. And this is one time in my life I really wanted to make a change. I knew I was doing things I shouldn't be doing, I'd go to places I shouldn't be going to. And I knew I was with some people I shouldn't be with. I knew that. Hell, I wasn't stupid. And I wanted to be a good father and a good husband. And one either Father Warren came up with a brilliant idea that I ought to take a pledge. And I knew what it was to sign a pledge. I looked at it. I just promised God I wouldn't touch alcohol on any farm for one year. I thought, what is this? Hell, there's nothing to it. I signed that thing. You put the plug in the jug, you don't drink. It's that simple. Wasn't that simple for this alcoholic, I tell you. Because I wanted to drink every day, and I couldn't drink. You know, I was a whole lot, whole lot like the guy that uh, moved down to Louisville from Indianapolis. And uh, first thing he done when he got down there, he rented him an apartment right next door to the tavern. And the first night, he, he ran over to the tavern, and <clears throat> he ran in there, and <clears throat> excuse me, told the bartender, sent me up three shots and three beers. Bartender thought it was a little bit strange the way he drinks like that, but he threw the money up on the bar, and the bartender set him up, and he drank him down, and out he went. Next night, same thing, three shots and three beers. Bartender really wanted to question, say, well, how come you drink like this? But the guy paid his bill, wasn't causing any trouble, and so he didn't say anything to him, and this went on for three or four months. And uh, but this time, the, this guy had moved his wife down, and uh, she was beginning to complain a little bit about his drinking. and He come in one night. The bartender said, usual? He said, no. Give me two shots and two beers tonight. Uh, this bartender couldn't stand it any longer because he said, I just got to find out what's going on. He said, look, you've been coming here for months now, ordering three shots and three beers. And now tonight it's two shots and two beers. What's going on? He said, oh, that's the story. He said, uh, when I left Indianapolis, I got two brothers up there and uh, we drank together uh, every night. We sat down, we had a shot and a beer together. So when 
I left Indianapolis. We, we just made a pact that any time uh, we'd sit down and have a drink, we'd have a drink for one another. Parker said, oh, my God, what happened? Did one of your, one of your brothers die or something? He said, oh, no, nothing like that. He said, uh, my wife's been complaining about my drinking, so I decided I'd go to stop drinking. <laughs> and, and that, that's, that's pretty much the way I was. I would have loved to have found a way to stop drinking if I could have kept drinking. But I, I signed that pledge, and uh, I, I don't know if anyone here has ever been drawn a pledge or not, but if you haven't, you don't have to be. Stay here in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and do it the easy and the comfortable way. I've tried it both ways, and I guarantee it's a whole lot easier in this program of AA. Uh, I, I was just, a, I lasted six months on that pledge, and I was a miserable human being. I made those kids walk around on eggshells. Boy, they better not raise their voice, same thing to me. And I'd tell Juanita, you know, don't raise your voice to me. I'll show you. I'll go out there and I'll take a drink. We la- I lasted six months that way, and I don't know if Juanita said something or the kids said something. I don't know what happened. But I took that drink after six months, and one of them said many, many times in the program of Al-Anon, thank God that I took that drink, because it relieved all that pressure that we was living under in that house. And that's all it was, the house and one of and these six kids existed in. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, Al-Ateen has changed that house into a home today. Uh, it was shortly after this that I was introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, my brother plays an important part in my being here. My brother wound up on Skid Row in the city of Louisville and lived on Skid Row for three or four years there. He walked into the central office one day and Louisville wanted some help. And uh, he found help. And Norman began to stop by Wolfer's Tavern and tell me about this program. And God had his hands on Norman's shoulder and he talked with me. Norman never once ever said anything to me about, Bob, look how much you're drinking. Look what you're doing to your family. You're about to lose your job. He didn't say anything like this. He always talked about what was happening in his life. And Norman believed in that attraction without promotion. And you know, I was attracted to what was happening in Norman's life, and I listened to him. Now, one of you wasn't talking that way. She was trying to get Norman to take me to AA, and he said it doesn't work that way. Bob had to call and ask for help. And she said, hell, he'll die for her because he asked for help. And Norman said, well, he may have to die. But my brother was sober eight months, and this was one of his opportunity to trick me into AA. I think I was tricked here. I don't think it makes any difference why you're here. I think the important thing is that you are here. And uh, I think I was tricked in my first AA meeting. I'll tell you how I got here. Uh, my brother and I was going fishing going down to Cumberland Lake for a week. And uh, Norman had been sober eight months at that time, and she said, Bob, you're going down there with Norman. You're going to do something to cause him to start drinking. And I said, no, and I did. I said, I went out and talked with Norman, and I told him that I may drink a beer or two while I'm down there, but he assured me it wouldn't bother him as long as he didn't drink it. She said, yeah, but if you really love Norman like you say you do, what you ought to do is go to one of those AA meetings with him and you could find out something about this alcoholism, and you could probably help him stay sober. <laughs> and I thought about it for a few minutes, and I thought, well, hell, I wouldn't mind going if, you know, if it would help him. And she said, you'll have to call him. I called my brother and said, can I go to one of those meetings with you? 
Man, he was delighted. He thought I wanted some help. <laughs> uh, I will never forget that night. Uh, I was 28 years old when this took place. Uh, my brother, Bill, and two other members of Alcoholics Anonymous picked me up, and we rode 30 damn mile out to some meeting somewhere, I don't know, out in Radcliffe, Kentucky, and these guys was talking about something I don't know. Anyway, we got at that meeting, and uh, they didn't even have a speaker that night. They played a tape or, tape or some southeastern speaker that night. It wouldn't have meant anything to me that night if Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob would have both been at the meeting that night because I was not impressed with what was going on. We got back that night, and Juanita was waiting for me at the kitchen door with open arms. She thought I'd been to AA and been cured. <laughs> I, she met me at that kitchen door. I stuck my finger out, and I said, my brother's been sober eight months, and not a damn thing I could do to help him stay sober, and I'm going out and get drunk. And I went out and got drunk that night. Wani called Norman the next day and said, Bob didn't get a whole lot out of that meeting last night, but he'd like to go Friday night. <laughs> I didn't know I wanted to go Friday night, but after she informed me I wanted to go and she still had that divorce hanging over my head, I decided I'd go Friday night. And we went to that meeting on Friday night, called an old group called the Pleasure Ridge Group. Meets at Briargate Presbyterian Church on Upper Hunter Strace Road. I happen to be a member today of a group called the Crumbs Lane Group that meets in that very same room that I went to some 51 years ago. And I didn't get anything out of AA, but one of got into the program called Al-Anon. And thank God for the program of Al-Anon. I believe I come into AA through the doors of Al-Anon. I'm going to tell you a couple things about what it had done that drove me into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and, <laughs> and increased my drinking, I'll tell you. Uh, this credit manager over at Bacon Department Store there in Louisville used to call us every month. She was always wanting money from us for some reason. I think it's because we were charging things and wasn't paying our bill, you know. But... We used to lie to her all the time before Al-Anon. One of the kids are sick. We'll double up next month. You know all the excuses you come up with. Not after Al-Anon. One of them told Mr. Snyder, I'm sorry, I don't handle the bills any longer. You have to talk to Mr. Wessel about this, and you'd catch him down at Wolford's Tavern, the number so-and-so. One, I gave her the number. <laughs> and and I, I'd be sitting down there drinking with my buddies, you know, a couple of bucks thrown off the bar, you know. You try to explain to some credit manager why you can't send them $10. And it sounds like a big shot in front of your buddies. I tell you, it gets to be a problem. And I drank more and more over these things. I remember my boss called one. I'd spent 11 years with this company in sales, and my boss called one morning. I think one it had been in Allen on about six months at this time. And uh, I told one, I said, tell him I've already left town. She didn't. She said, he's still laying here in bed drunk. You want to talk to him? Hand me the telephone. <laughs> needless to say, I lost that job about six months thereafter. But, yeah. You know, I, I said I was 28 years old when I made my first AA meeting. And I heard speakers talk to Miss Podium as I'm doing this afternoon. And I began to compare. I, I made my mind up. 
that I was not an alcoholic, and I was going to show you people that I was different. I just had, I had too much going for me. I, by this time, I owned my own business. I had that job, had a little money in the bank, owned a couple automobiles, had this nice house at one end, and I, these seven kids existed in. Uh, if anyone would have told me, Bob, in the next two and a half years, you keep this drinking up, what's going to happen? You're going to lose a, a job. You're going to lose that house. You're going to lose those automobiles. You're going to lose that family. And you're going to wind up with a shotgun in your hand, almost killing your mother-in-law and your wife and your children. You know what I would have said? You're nuts. I would not let any one of these things happen. But all these things did happen because I continued to drink. First thing, I, I lost that job. And to me, this is chronic alcoholism. My boss's brother was in AA. His name was George. George called me one Friday night. They'd been trying to run me down for four or five weeks, couldn't find me. And uh, I'd been around AA for about a year at this time, and George told me that his brother had fired me that day. And I got to think about my responsibility as a father, my responsibility as a husband. And I was crying crocodile tears to George that night, telling him I, I needed that job. I did. I needed that job desperately. And George said, Bob, let me, let, me, let me talk to my brother and I'll call you right back. See if there's anything I can do for you. It wasn't 15 minutes. seemed like 15 days before George called me back. He said, Bob, I got everything all straightened out for you. You come on into work Monday morning and you got your job back. I said, thank you, George. I'll never take a drink again. George should have known I couldn't keep that promise. Never is a long, long time. Thank God we have one day at a time in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I didn't drink anything Friday night. I was too scared to drink. I didn't drink anything Saturday or Sunday. I was too scared to drink. I started in the office Monday morning, and I got about a halfway in there, and I got thinking. Thinking's bad for this alcoholic, I'll tell you. <laughs> I got to think about what my boss was going to say. Hell, I knew what I could have written the script out for him. Anyway, I stopped in and had a drink. I don't know how much I drank that day. But later that day, I walked into that office. I walked up to my boss's desk. I took the keys out of my pocket, and I threw them on his desk. And I told him, I said, you keep your damn job. I don't need it. And I turned around and walked out. And this man had not opened his mouth. And to me, that is chronic alcoholism. When I was dry Friday night, I was concerned about those children and my responsibilities. I put a little alcohol in my system. I was no longer concerned about those responsibilities. You know, after I was around AA for a little while, I, incidentally, I'm a, I consider myself a bear alcoholic. Uh, I drank beer all the time. I, uh, my last drunk was a beer drunk. But, you know, after I got in AA, uh, it's a little bit tough to hide a case of beer. You know, a little bit easier to hide that half pint. And I got on that hard stuff. And uh, uh, I run into a guy that was in and out of AA. And he and I hooked up right away, you know. And uh, it's uh, tough being on the fringes of AA. It's a whole lot easier being in the middle of AA. It's a whole lot safer in the middle of AA. And I had this ex explained by a speaker I heard talk several years ago. I heard him talk, and he said, about being in the middle of AA, it's safe in the middle of AA. He said he, is, he compared that, but he said he has never in his life ever heard of anyone 
falling off the middle of a flat roof. And, and I thought about that when he said that. You know, that's a whole lot like AA. You know, if you're in the middle of it, you're not going to fall off. And I was not in the middle of AA. I was on the fringes. And uh, this guy was in and out, and we started, we were drinking, and uh, I got on, he told me about vodka. You drink vodka, they don't smell it. I didn't know that. You know, you find a lot of good information in AA. And, uh, and I, I didn't want to take a chance whether you could smell it or not, really. I, the only thing I'd done right in two and a half years is I kept going to AA. I made a lot of AA meetings drinking. A lot of AA meetings drinking. And uh, I used to pull up to an AA meeting and I'd reach under that seat, you know, and I'd grab that half pint of vodka and I'd take a couple chugs off of it, you know, and I'd been drinking all day, and, and I'd, I'd get to think about, well, maybe they can smell it. I'd reach over and grab that whole pack of Clorettes. I'd dump that whole pack in. And my sponsor, Bill, used to say all the time when I walked through that door, and you saw that green foam run on my mouth, <laughs> you knew what kind of shape I was in. And I, that, that's the way I was for two and a half years around this program. And I'll never forget a gal by the name of Lil Nyland out at that old Pleasure Ridge group that Juanita and I went to every Friday night. Every Friday night I was there. After the meeting, that gal would get me off in the corner, and she'd put her arms around me, and she'd hug me, and she'd hold me. She'd say, Bob, you have faith. Keep coming back. We need you here. We want you here. Please come back. Lil never once ever said anything about my drinking. I know she knew I was drinking. You know, if she had once ever said anything about my drinking, I would have told her what she could have done with her AA. So Lil literally saved my life, but kept telling me to come back. And I don't know if there's anyone in the room today had to take a drink, walk through that door. If you did it, I understand it. I don't say it's the right thing to do, but I don't think you're any different than what I am. You keep coming back, and this thing will work. Uh, we lost that house. That's all it was, a house. And, uh, we sold that house. My mother-in-law sold the house. I resented that. Hell, I couldn't sell my own house, you know. She sold it for me, and uh, we had a little equity in it. And uh, one and I went to the bank, and we put that money in our joint checking account. And uh, uh, I took her home. I went to the tavern. She got in the other car, went to the bank. Pretty soon that money wasn't in my account. And I resented this, and I talked that mother-in-law into buying a house, and we'd all move in together. Now, you don't got to be nuts to move in with somebody that you hate. But I had that plan all figured out. My mother-in-law had been paying most of the bills. I figured, hell, if we move in together, she'd pay them all, you know. And uh, that didn't work, and uh, uh, things were just really beginning to close in. Uh, uh, and uh, once again... Pressure was on, and I, I took off. I, when the pressure gets too bad, I leave. I go fishing. And uh, I, took, I said I was gone about a week. One of says I was gone six weeks. I don't know. But I, I got back one Friday morning. This was about two and a half years that I'd been around AA. And uh, I got back one Friday morning, and uh, I went in the back door, tried to get in. My key wouldn't work. So I hollered for one in. I said, something's wrong. My key don't work. She said, I know it. Uh, her mother had the locks changed. I said, well, I'm going to need a key. She said, you don't get a key. I said, what do you mean I don't get a key? I said, she, I said, what do you want from me, woman? She said, I want you to stop drinking. 
And I hollered through the door that morning, I'd rather be dead and not be able to drink. I turned around and left and went over to Wolfer's Tavern that day. I drank beer that entire day. About 7.30 that night, I decided, hell, they can't lock me out of my house. Who do they think they are? So I went back over. My key still didn't fit, incidentally, so I just knocked the door down to get in. And I can vaguely remember my mother-in-law giving me one more chance. She said, Bob, if you don't get on my property, I'm going to have you arrested. I said, that's a fine thing to do, have your son-in-law arrested. Who's going to feed these seven kids? And she let me know who had been feeding them the last three or four years, I'll tell you. She called the police on me. I decided I'm going to show her. I went down to the basement, got my shotgun, 12-gauge Browning automatic. And I remember picking up two full boxes of shells. And I don't know what I was going to do with two boxes of shells. But I remember putting three shells in that gun. I heard that chamber slamming right now. Next thing I vaguely remember is I stumbled up that stairway, swinging that gun around, looking for that mother-in-law. And thank God we had come face to face that night because she'd gone into her room to get her gun. She was going to get rid of the problem that night. <laughs> I can vaguely remember kids running and screaming, get away from her drunken maniac father. And that gun had a hair trigger on it. It's a miracle. It's a drunken, raving maniac I was that night that the gun didn't go off. And I stumbled on up the stairway that night and I went up into the attic. It was a warm November night. Nobody up there bothering me. I was at peace with the world. I knew what the problem was. I wasn't drinking. People caused me problems. That's what's wrong. The next thing I remember is someone in a blue uniform. And one said, I told that policeman I was going to blow his head off with that shotgun if he come up that stairway. Now, he couldn't see me, but I could see him fairly. I just vaguely remember this. Anyway, he closed the door. They called out the right squad that night. Always police. We lived on a corner lot. Driveway goes all the way around the house. And they said it was police cars all the way around the house. They had searchlights on the building. And uh, they was going to shoot tear gas up that attic, getting me out of there. And the reason they didn't, they didn't know where our children were that night. And this happened about 40, almost 49 years ago. And if things like that would have happened today, the SWAT team would have blown me away that night. They didn't have a SWAT team back then. And over at that Pleasant Ridge group at one end I went to on most Friday nights, the telephone over there is locked up in the pastor's office. You can't get to it. This happened about 7.30 that night. One was getting dressed to go to her and on on meeting that night when all this gun thing happened. She called over to the group that night, and they were able to answer the telephone because the women in the sewing circle was meeting that night. They needed a place to meet, and the pastor come over opened his office so Al-Anon would have a place to meet. And they were able to answer the phone that night. My brother was at the meeting, Bill and Lawrence and Father Mac, a boy I'd gone to school with had gone into the priesthood. He had an alcoholic in this parish, and he was over that night to find out something about alcoholism. They come over, and they talked to these police, and they leaving. I didn't know all this was going on. And Anyway, Bill and my brother come up and asked me to give up the gun, and I did, and I wasn't bad at anybody, that mother-in-law. I don't think I had intentions of shooting anyone. I'm, I'm, even drunk, I wasn't that kind of a guy. But, you know, I was just so full of rage and hatred and revenge that night. It's just a miracle that gun didn't go off. And they took me out, and 
begin to pour a little coffee down. They talk to these police and they're leaving. I don't, they, and they convinced me that night if I get, stayed out on the street, I was going to get arrested because I didn't have any place to go. So they took me out to Our Lady of Peace Hospital, and uh, uh, I was pretty drunk when I got there, and uh, they gave me a shot and put me to bed. And I come to the next morning. I, I didn't wake up. I come to, and uh, uh, I didn't know where I was. I thought I was in some hotel because uh, I'd traveled all my life. And uh, I, I gathered up my clothes and uh, went out of the room. I got went down the hallway to check out, and I got to the doors down there, the double doors, and there's no doorknobs on them, and they're locked. And I realized where I was. And I swore that morning I'd get in with these damn guys, put me in there for the last thing I do. But God works in strange ways in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I tell you. I run the psychiatrist out of that room. I told him what he could do with his books. And I'm not at all down in the medical profession. This man was a good psychiatrist. He could have helped me if I would have given him a chance. But anyway, he called Juanita that Saturday afternoon and said, Your husband doesn't want any help. Want any help. I'm afraid he will die a hopeless drunk. Thank God the people in AA don't believe that. A lot of people come to that hospital to see me. And I sat in that hospital at night in the dark. I would not burn their lights. And you know with an attitude like that, you ought to die drunk. And I'll never forget my sponsor coming in, and Bill flipped those lights on, and he had a few choice words to say that I can't repeat in this podium. But you know, I lied to Bill, and I lied to all you AA people who come out of the hospital to see me. I knew what you wanted to hear. I'd been around two and a half years this time, and I told you I'm coming back today. But you know what I really thought deep down in my heart? Get the hell out of here and leave me alone. I don't need your help. I can do this myself. And in three days, they turned me loose because they would, I would not let them help me. And as soon as I got out of that hospital, I got to thinking about my three drinking buddies. One of them owned that Wolfer's Tavern that I drank in. And he eventually sobered up in AA and died sober, thank God. The other boy was in the real estate business. Other other man that I was more important to me and my family was in the roofing business. And these three guys did not come to that hospital to see me. And they're the very people that woke me up and made me realize the people in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous really do care about you. And when I got out of the hospital, I went and talked to my sponsor that day, and Bill told me a lot about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that day. He told me about about he told me about <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> he told me about the attitude that I had. He told me about a lot of things that day. We looked back over the last couple of years when I was been running the show. And it wasn't a very bird picture. And Bill said, Bob, you've been around over two and a half years now. Why don't you try it our way for six weeks and see if you can't find something? And I thought about it for a few minutes and thought about my drinking buddies that did come in there to see me. And thank God they didn't come to see me, because had they come to, to see me, I know I, I could have taken another drink. But I can do that. That's, I don't know if I got another recovery or not, and that's terribly important to me. So Bill said, won't you try it our way for six weeks? I think that's what I'll do. He said, they'll still be selling that stuff in the six weeks if you don't like, <laughs> like what you find here. And I said, okay. So I got into AA. And it's just been a, been a tremendous journey over these 
My sobriety days is 9th of November, 1962, and it was 48 years this past November. And uh, I wish I could tell you that <clears throat> one in and out and on, our children in Alateen, and me and AA, man, we set out on this journey, and it's been a pleasant journey. And we've never had a crossword in almost these 48 years, but that'd be a big lie. We had a, we had a lot of problems. Uh, one in was in Al-Anon, our children in Alateen, and we used to go to meetings, and, and we were Mr. and Miss AA in Alateen around Louisville, and hell, we'd get in the car, we'd arguing about money, and she's like, I like to make it, and she likes to spend it. And, and this, you know, but with our sponsors, we sat down and talked about this, and you know, Philip talked a lot about sponsorship. God, how important sponsorship is in this program. Not, not only in Alcoholics Anonymous, but also in Al-Anon and also in Alateen. Sponsorship is so important. And we used to meet with our sponsors, and uh, we'd go through these things, and Bill would always say, really, how important is it, you know? And uh, we begin to grow in this program, and it's been over the years, uh, uh, just so many great things have happened. Uh, uh, after... Uh, Oh, my sponsor, Bill, was sober, uh, or I was sober 21 years, and Bill got sick. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit about how important Bill was in my life. Bill was a guy, just, he walked with me. Bill, Bill never forced me into this program. He never got in front of me, pulled me anywhere. He never got behind me and pushed me. Bill took my hand and walked with me and with Juanita and with our children through this program. And he sh showed us this way of life. And Bill got sick, and uh, Bill was dying. I went in the hospital to see him, and uh, Bill had been sober 38 years at this time. And uh, uh, I tried to tell Bill that day how important he was in my life. And Bill said, Bob, you, so many times you come in to share your problems with me, and you, you allowed me the same opportunity to share my problems back with you. And I didn't even know this was happening in this sponsor-sponsee relationship. And Bill thanked me so much for being a sponsee of his. And the next day Bill died. He made me promise that when he died that I would get another sponsor. Bill died on the 7th of November, 1984. And on my AA birthday, the 9th of November, my 21st AA birthday, we buried Bill. And I went to a meeting that night, and I looked around trying to find somebody that looked just like Bill, you know, somebody with 38 years of sobriety. And Bill was a little short, heavy, how Bill was fat. He, uh, <laughs> and, uh, Bill, had a, Bill had a big red nose and big red, Bill looked, Drunk after 38 years of sobriety. That's exactly the way Bill looked. But what a jolly man he was. And I had promised Bill I would get a spot. I looked around for somebody with 38 years of sobriety just like Bill, and I went six months without a sponsor. And I don't advise that for anyone. I don't care how long you've been sober. And uh, I didn't quit going to meetings. I, I've always been a meeting maker. I go to meetings every night. And... Uh, uh, but a lot of things began to happen. I didn't have that one-on-one -on -one contact. I happened to be down at a convention down in Jekyll, uh, Georgia. 
and I run into a guy in Louisville down there who was sober this time eight years, and I said, hell, I don't need anyone with 38 years sobriety to be my sponsor. All I need is someone I sit down on a one-one basis to talk with, and I asked Tom to be my sponsor. And Tom has been my sponsor for over 25 years now. And uh, Tom's not like Bill. Well, Bill was an older man. Bill was like a father to me. And uh, Tom was like a brother to me. But, you know, things, things have been good. About uh, six years ago, I don't even know what time I got started. It don't make a difference. I have a couple things I'm going to say anyway. <laughs> About six years ago, my ape program got just a little bit stale. I don't know. And, and I've always been a meeting maker. I said I go to meetings every night. And uh, uh, I was at my home group one Monday night. And uh, in walked a young man. I didn't know. He was about 30 years old. And he walked, walked up. And I told him, my name's Bob Wessel. I'm an alcoholic. Welcome to our group. He said, my name's Fred. This is my first meeting. And it wasn't about a week later, Fred asked me to be a sponsor. And the next week, I went over to the Iroquois group. Happened to be on a Tuesday night. A man came in there. His name was Bruce. And uh, I walked up and said, hi, Bruce. Told him who I was. And I knew Bruce from, from being in the church where we went to school where we went to. And Bruce was about 30 years old. And a week later, Bruce asked me to be a sponsor. And uh, I shared what Bill had shared with me, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, go through the steps. And most important thing is to continue sponsorship. And what, I, what I've given you, please pass on to someone else. And these guys begin to pass this on. And after about three years, uh, Bruce called me one Friday night and said, you going to meeting tonight? I said, sure, I'm going to meeting tonight. He said, uh, I, I got something I need to talk with you about, Bob. Can you meet me over at Fifth Quarter at the restaurant? I thought Bruce was thinking about drinking, maybe. I didn't know. He had sober about three years at that time. And he said, I want to treat you to dinner. Uh, and I should have known something. Hell, he didn't treat me to dinner. I knew something was up. But anyway, I went over to Fifth Quarter, and we walked back in a private room. And there was 12 young men in there that I sponsored Bruce, I sponsored Fred, Fred sponsored Kevin, Kevin sponsored Sam, Sam sponsored Brian, and each, each one of those men got up starting with Fred first and shared what I had given them with someone else that passed on down 12 times over a three-year period. And that same group of 12 men now is about 20-some men. And they, those young men are having the best time of their lives going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm sure many, many times one in has wondered why I go to a meeting every night. She hadn't been feeling well in the last couple of years. And I know probably some nights I should be home when she's not feeling well. But I go to meeting every night, and that's why I go. Just about two months ago, my grandson wound up in jail, drinking problem, drug problem. And uh, his own mom and dad could not go see him because they had had him arrested. And anyway, I went down to jail 
to see uh, Evan. Went down a couple of times. He was only in there for 10 days. It was just really to dry him out. So what it amounted to, we had him put in there. And uh, I went down to see Evan, and he's 21 years old, not married. And I got to talk to him about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, about drinking. And he said, they called me Juppie. He said, Juppie, I don't have a drinking problem. I said, Evan, you're in jail. I'm going to leave here in about 10 minutes. And that is a damn problem, whether you want to admit it or not. And he got, he got to thinking about that. And we got out of jail. Uh, he, he was uh, committed to go to the certain AA meetings. And uh, this is another reason I still go to AA. Uh, I was over at that Iroquois group one night and run into a young man there, 21 years old. His name was Jason. He'd been sober about a month. Bruce was sponsoring him. And I said, Jason, do me a favor, will you? I want you to call Evan, my grandson, and tell me about yourself, will you? And he did, and he called Evan, and uh, he told Evan if he ever wanted to go to a meeting, please give him a call. Last Tuesday night, Tuesday a week ago, I was over at that Iroquois group, and I, I sat up front all the time, and uh, after the meeting, Jason came up to me. He said, Evan's here, my grandson. He said, Evan called me and asked me if I'd come over and pick him up, take him to a meeting. That's really nice. I'll go to a meeting every night. Uh, I need to tell you about these grandchildren. One and I, we got, we got 18 grandchildren, two great-grandchildren. Uh, I'm going to tell you about the... Uh, these grandkids, and then I'm, I'm going to hush up here. But uh, I got the opportunity to see a grandson born in this world. I don't know if any of you guys ever got to see a child born in this world or not, but if you haven't, you ever get that opportunity, for God's sakes, please take advantage of it. Uh, I, I didn't know what it was to, to have a child. We, we only had nine. <laughs> but, but, you know, Back when Juanita was, I was having kids, they didn't let the father in the delivery room. And uh, back when two of our kids was born, I was so drunk they didn't let me in the hospital. But I got to see this grandson born in this world. And Mary Rose invited Juanita and I both back. And hell, I didn't know what a woman went through to have a baby. I just thought, you know, when I'm, I thought about having a child back when I was drinking, she's going to be in the hospital for three or four days. And I can drink or do what the hell I want to do. Have no one to answer. That's what I thought about having children. You know, that's a shame, even when you're drunk, to have that kind of a feeling. But I got to see his grandson born in this world. That, that boy popped out. And I thought the doctor missed him. Then he grabbed him. and It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't just a minute, you know. We got to hold that grandson in our arms, and you don't get any closer to God. It doesn't get any more spiritual than that. I got an adopted granddaughter I want to tell you about. Our, our second oldest daughter, Pam, the one that talked at the first Indiana Al-Anon convention, uh, came out one day and she said she wanted to adopt a baby. She was a single mother and she needed our, one in our permission to do so. If we're going to go to Paraguay and adopt this Granny Indian baby. And what I really thought was, hell, once you get buried, dude, like Juan and I had done it, you know. But 
she didn't want any part of that. And uh, so she got Juanita to go to Paraguay with her. They said they'd be back in two weeks. Well, they got into Paraguay, okay, but they had a little problem getting out. It was about seven weeks later. Uh, I got to meet Emily, a five-month-old adopted granny Indian baby. Black hair, black eyes, dark complexion, you know. Five months old, just just a beauty from smile, mirror there, you know. And when Emily was 18 months old, Ronnie and I and her mother Pam was in Washington, D.C. We was in our motor home. We'd gone up there to a convention, and uh, we was out shopping one day, and uh, Emily messed in her diapers, what happened, and uh, uh, Pam said she's going to take her back to the motor home. I said, no, you're not. You and Mom, y'all go home, you're shopping, you let me do this. I, I took Emily back to the motor home and cleaned her up, and we, lay, we didn't go back shopping. We laid on the couch, and she put her arms around me, and I put my arms around her, and we bonded that day. And, you know, I never got the opportunity to bond with any of my nine children. I was too drunk when most of them was born. And even after the last two was born in sobriety, I was too busy going to AA, too busy working, too busy trying to regain everything I'd thrown away to bond with my own children. But, you know, God never takes anything away from us. He don't always have something to offer in return. And uh, that little girl... Uh, Big problem with these little grand granddaughters, especially, how they grow up. And she's now 17 years old and just a raving beauty and uh, dark complexion. And these guys are looking at her, and uh, <laughs> I get all upset about it. And Ronnie uh, says I talk too much about Emily, but and maybe I do. But she's special in my life because I got, got that opportunity to bond with her. And God has been awful good to us, and uh, I'm now 79 years old, almost 80, I'll be 80 in June, and slowing down a whole lot, slowing down a whole lot. Uh, it's getting to be a problem for one and I both to get around, and we've been blessed for 48 years in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous being asked to come to conventions, talk and share and meet people. And we have friends all over the United States because, really because of our first daughter who was quite a allergy. In fact, Father Fred says she was vaccinated with a phonograph needle. And that's the reason they asked one and I to join them at conventions because they wanted Cindy to talk. And one end I got to go along and we talked. And it's just been, been a tremendous journey. And we're about to step back and not accept any more speaking engagements. We have one more left. Next week we'll be in Erie, Pennsylvania. At the, I think I call it the Spring Fling up there. And I guess it's going to be our Spring Fling. Uh, but I'll guarantee you one thing. I'm not going to stop going to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I need to be there. I need to be there for myself, and I need to be there for that new person that walks through that door. And if you're new here, please keep coming back. You and your new people, are, you're the lifeblood of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have often said around this program, we need you new people desperately. 
If everyone in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was sober 40 years, we'd be fighting and telling one another how to do this and do that. And it, it's, you do people are so terribly important. If you're new here, please come, come back and give this thing a chance to work for you. Thank you for having me.